You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Welcome to the latest edition of 100, the Ed Gordon Podcast. Today, a conversation with singer-songwriter Valerie Simpson. Simpson, along with her writing partner and husband, Nick Ashford, became one of the great songwriting teams of the 20th century. They started finding success in the mid-60s with songs for artists including Aretha Franklin and The Fifth Dimension. In 1966, their first big hit, was Let's Get Stoned by the legendary Ray Charles. That song brought them to the attention of Motown founder Barry Gordy, who brought them to the company, where they began to craft songs for Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell and Diana Ross. The duo's years at Motown began a string of hits that would bring classics. Ain't nothing like the real thing. Reach out and touch somebody's hands. You're all I need to get by and many more. And the hits continued into the next decades. I'm Every Woman for Shaka Khan, Teddy Pendergrass, and Is It Still Good to You, and Landlord for Gladys Knight in the Pips, just to name a few. They would later add songs they recorded to that list, including Solid, Found a Cure, and It Seems to Hang On. The husband and wife team continued creating music until Nick's death in 2011. Over their career, they received countless awards and accolades, including their induction to the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2004. Next month, the native New Yorker will receive the key to the city. That's where we started our conversation. I wondered how she felt about getting the key. Well, you know, uh, 
Awards are not my thing, but my daughters felt something so much about this till I had to look at it again through their eyes, you know, and and realize that I am a native New Yorker, too. You know, I was born in New York. So it is a nice thing to be considered and to get it. So I'm not quite sure what this key is going to open, but (laughs) hey. (laughs) Let let me ask you. you when you when you think about all the accolades that have been bestowed upon you and obviously Nick over the years, um, you know, now that I've gotten old and gray and, and people come to you and talk to you about what your career has meant to them, when you're in it, you don't always see it because you're in the middle of it. You're you're in it. Right. But when when time allows you to look back, and I know people come to you and talk about the soundtrack of their lives and all of those things, what what's that mean for you to you? Well. You know, it it's so much more meaningful now than they were years ago when we were writing the songs because I didn't know we were having that kind of an effect on people or their lives. And I actually, after being, you know, put down like everybody else for the last two, three years, you really start to realize that you do need songs with meaning that'll touch you to get you through certain things. And so songs mean more to me now than they used to. Yeah. So I'm really thrilled that I'm a part of that when people come up and say, yes, you affected me. Yes. I changed my plans because of this song, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of nice. You know what a lot of people don't know because Ashford and Simpson is so seminal and, and in people's minds, seared in people's minds, as a, as a duet, not only as performers, but songwriters, but you guys started out as a trio in writing. Right. Initially, it was three of us, uh, Jossie Joe Armstead and myself. And uh, actually, she and I wrote some songs together without Nick. And then uh, we wrote some songs with Nick. And then she went on and did some other really great things in Chicago. Mm-hmm. What What was it like to hear that first hit? You know, everybody talks about Let's get stoned. And you all, I think, you know, don't get the credit for things like California Soul that the Fifth Dimension did and and, and mm. down the line. But when you heard Let's Get Stoned, you know, on the radio and then saw it climb the charts and it's it's Ray Charles, what was that feeling like for you? It was a real wow. You know, our initial writing experience really wasn't, we didn't know what a writer gets. Mm-hmm. And we didn't realize that there was that kind of money to come. Uh, we were doing something we loved to do, and we were doing it for the advance that we mm-hmm. would get, not even knowing, you know, yeah. that if it goes to be a hit, that all of that is going to happen. So it was really thrilling. I mean, I think it we probably went on into like a silent mode for a couple of months. Cause we were like, what, mm-hmm. you know, and it's going up the charts, you know, we standing outside of bars listening. <laughs> it was crazy. Val, what's it like for you? Um, when you, when you think about just the array of songs that you all have written, you know, you do fall into that, that pantheon of, of gambling huff, uh, you know, Holland, Dozier, Holland, I think about, you know, Jam and Lewis and Babyface for more contemporary, you know, uh, songs and, and the like. What, what's it like again now to sit back and think about, you know, you've been, again, inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But songs are the thing that stay with us. You know, yeah. TV shows, you did, but songs, 30, 40, 50 years. You know, my mom, when she had um, dementia at the end of her life, the thing she remembered. Uh, she could she could sing Rainy Night in Georgia like 
she was singing with Brooke Benton, but couldn't wow. remember where we were going a hundred times. You know, yeah, yeah. Talk to me about about what what giving the world those songs had has meant to you. Well, you know, it means that I realize now because the songs continue to live and have a life of their own that they will be here long after I'm gone, you know, and, you know, Nick's been gone 11 years now. So, you know, when I hear them and I realize how important they are and how, how they still radiate and, and generationally, you mm-hmm. know, where kids like five years old or six years old, no, ain't no mountain high enough. <laughs> you know, I'm like, you know, I didn't expect all of that to happen, mm-hmm. you know? So it, it's really quite rewarding. And it made me appreciate songwriting and give it more uh, esteem than I did when we were doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, I realized that people really do need something to get them going and to make them get up and go, you know, and that's what a song will do for you if it's the right song. You know, I, some years ago, uh, and, and I love music. I can't sing a lick, can't play an instrument, but I love music. You know, I'm the liner person, can tell you all of those things. But it wasn't until a few years back that I knew you, you guys had done Shoo Shoo Shine by the yeah. Dynamic Superiors. Um, you know, do you often think about um, those early days, you know, when you you weren't quite sure whether this was going to be a, a, a two-year gig or a lifetime gig? What was that? Well... Nobody in my family, you know, had come through music and nobody in Nick's family. So we were always unsure about what the next move. And just imagine when you're waiting for a phone to ring and somebody to give you an opportunity to write a song. It's so ridiculous and rare, you know, that these things happen or that they even find you. So, you know, it was always a big surprise. And I think if we had thought about the logistics of it and how unlikely would be that we could be a success we probably would have found other careers but we really enjoyed it you know I loved it you know it's a funny thing I was initially even with Jossie back then I was making a lot of money doing jingles Mm -hmm. and then Nick came to me and said you know you're not available to write seemingly anymore you got to make up your mind what is it that you really want to do He says, you know, uh, we got a chance here, you know. And so I put the jingles down because I loved what I was doing, you know, with him. So even though I was making major six-figure money, I knew it wasn't what I wanted in my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I couldn't remember them when I got home, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask you, now that you think about all of the people that, that you've worked with, too, you know, yeah. from your years at, at Motown um, and just the people that have taken your songs. Um, you know, sometimes it is those are the fondest memories often. You know, the people that you look back and came into your lives because of that. Was there someone who was a favorite to work with and and not necessarily by their talent, but just the vibe you all had in the studio with one given artist? I would say Marvin, Marvin Gaye. Mm-hmm. He was just so generous. And, you know, because he was singing with women, he had a way of making them better mm-hmm. and opening himself up to them. And and uh, he really inspired us 
as producers because we would be watching him and forgetting that we were producing the record <laughs> because he would let himself get so into it. Mm-hmm. I mean, physically into it. He would do more in the studio than he would do on stage mm-hmm. to make it happen, to make it come alive, to give you what you needed. And uh, it was thrilling. He was really a thrilling artist to record. And uh, he inspired me a lot. What was it? Um, you know, I, I recall so many people would compare uh, Barry Gordy to Bob Johnson when they talked about BET and Motown. And I said the one difference was that Barry Gordy was a practitioner of song. He wrote songs. He did. Bob was a businessman. And so right. sometimes there's a difference that you can't really understand fully what an artist needs if you haven't been there. I'm wondering how much producing and writing helped you as an artist. Well, for sure, uh, having that come first in our lives. You know, we started out actually as singers, Valerie mm-hmm. and Nick. Mm-hmm. And that didn't work. We knew we'd never make it that way. And uh, so the writing became the important thing. And then when we asked to be producers, we asked Barry because we thought we were, you know, handing in really good demos. And uh, we knew we were ready to do it. And that is the foundation of everything. You know, when you do the production, you get the the track the way you want it. Then you just lay that vocal on there to put the, uh, the icing on the cake, so to speak. Uh, and it really meant a lot that we had that foundation uh, of as producers. If you had to pick one artist, songwriter, producer that you would say, I'm going to lay my hat on first, which w- which would it be? Definitely a songwriter. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. I didn't even consi- consider the singing thing a real thing, you know. I saw Quincy in February. I went, I was in California and I got to go by his house Mm -hmm. and hang out with him for a while. And I hadn't seen him in such a long time. And I got a chance to really tell him not only that I loved him, but just the fact that he was the first person that recognized that I had a voice. Mm -hmm. That I could step out as a soloist, you know, and I was shocked then. And he really gave me confidence and, and hard songs and showed me who I was, you know, sometimes somebody else has to see it in you for you to even realize that you got it. What was it in terms of having Nick with you uh, as a singer and then doing solo stuff? Silly Wasn't I was early on for you, a, a big hit, but that's you by yourself. And then obviously the majority of what you did as an artist was, was with your husband. Um, what's the difference in, in, you know, a duet and having somebody there with you versus doing it solo beyond the obvious. I I thought of myself as a vehicle to get certain songs out that we had nobody to record them on. And so we would produce them on me. And so that's, that's that Valerie Simpson over there. You know, I think that if I had had major, major success as a, solo singer, I think uh, my head would have got swolled up. <laughs> and really and truly, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. the, the business does things to you, you mm-hmm. know. And I think our careers as a, you know, as a partnership would not have been the same. What what was it for you at Motown? It, it's always a mixed bag. Again, I think about my years at BET, there was some fantastic, wonderful things that BET gave those of us who worked there. And there were some things we were like, eh, I don't know. (laughs) 
what what was it like for you? Because um, you know, artists have and continue to have an affinity for Mr. Gordy and for Motown, but sometimes, you know, working in a place can be difficult. What was it for you? Well, it was more like college to me. Because mm. he put us right on top of each other. So you were always second guessing yourself because what you were hearing was so good. Mm-hmm. You know, and then I don't even know of another record company that would have quality control where your tunes had to, you know, go through a meeting and be judged, you know, and, and critiqued, you know, but it all made us stronger, you know. And so uh, I just learned a lot. And uh, we were really just vibing on each other, you know, and I think he did it, you know, kept the competition going and it, and it worked for us. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, I've had the pleasure of getting to know him over the years and his favorite stories are that he wanted it to be a competition. He wanted, you know, the temps to hear the tops and the tops made it to, you know, to number one. And he's telling the temps, oh, they got you beat. So, you know, there is. But it was a friendly competition to a great degree. But you know what else he did, though? He saw something that we didn't see. Mm -hmm. He saw the life of the song that we did not see. Mm -hmm. He knew that if he had other artists, if it was a really good song, if he made somebody else record it as well, he was putting it online to last a lot longer than three or four months. He was trying to make standards and we didn't even understand that we were in the midst of doing something like that, Mm -hmm. you know, which is why he went to ASCAP Mm -hmm. because they had those writers, you know, you know, the the Gershwins and the this and the that that were doing Broadway things. He was seeing much further than we were. And, you know, I I admire that, you know, and that's probably why, you know, these songs have lasted. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm going to ask you three things about songs that are always difficult. I don't ask artists anymore what's your favorite song, but I found ways around it, if you will. What song are you most asked about that you wrote? Probably Ain't No Mountain. Mm-hmm. What do you think it was about that that resonated? Well, you know, it's interesting, you know, because it means something to people. You know, it was really born out of a truth, you know, with Nick looking at the buildings and saying that they look like mountains, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, and New York wasn't going to take him under, (laughs) you know, that was his, you know, that was his thought when he looked at it. And that's what we wrote, even though we wrote it as a love song. Mm -hmm. I think people internally feel what he was feeling that, yeah, you know, mountain high enough, you know, to keep me from my dream, you know, or what it is I need to accomplish and I think that's why it's a much stronger song. If we had written it that way, I don't know if it would have you know, been the same, mm-hmm. but it's the integral part of the song. So people get it and they feel it. If, if, if there were a song you'd pick, and maybe that's it, but if there were a song you'd pick to put in a time capsule that they dig up you know, 25 years, 50 years, 100 years from now to illustrate an Ashford and Simpson song, what would that be? Hmm. Well, I'm very fond of You're All I Need to Get By. It just does something from my heart. So that might be one, yeah. Mm-hmm. When you became uh, an artist in the sense of you and Nick started having the hits that you had and people were looking at you because you were known by then as songwriters and producers, even by fans, you know, but when you all started to really get on that role and have the kind of list that that major artists have hits wise now, you know, you can 
stand in the room of a lot of folks and tick off your hits. Was that surprising to you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was thrilling. You know, and what saved us, too, is that we got to learn on the job because we started out as artists and we weren't that good, you know, but we had that foundation, that songwriting. Mm-hmm. So that when we went into that, they, you know, the audience would say, oh, they, they, you know, they did that, <laughs> you know, so it gave us something to fall back on. And so they appreciated us a lot more. I mean, Nick used to sweat with the towels under his arm. We were nervous. We didn't, you know, we didn't have it together, but we were allowed to learn on the job. And I love that. When did you find it? When did you know that when you hit the stage, finally, that you know what? We got it together. And you can leave one of those towels back, you know, <laughs> behind stage. When did you know you you were there? Uh, I don't exactly know when. But there is something about the love that an audience gives you mm-hmm. that makes it possible for you to oh, supersede what you thought you was going to do and do even more. Because they love you so much, you know, mm-hmm. or if they, sh- the more appreciation they showed us, the better we became right on the spot. And I love that about performing that uh, sometimes they make you do stuff you didn't know you were capable of, you know, you reach out even further. Uh, and it, it's a thrill. I mean, it's an instant thrill, you know, songwriter, you got to wait months and months mm-hmm. and months to see if the song is going to even do anything. Mm-hmm. But the thrill of an audience loving you, uh, they can get they can make you better. Is there a song I've asked many artists, songwriters this, you know, do you know um, if you've written a hit right then and there? And, and most honestly would say, no, you don't. There's some that you really believe. Yeah, we got it. And and it's correct. And there were a couple that you thought, yeah, we got it. And it didn't go anywhere. Do you have a song that you even if it's an album cut, it wasn't released to be a hit or not. Do you have a song that most people may not readily know that you love that you all have written? Um, Give me something real, which was on our first album. I really always loved it. Um, It was, it had talking, you know, I talked about my feelings and he talked about his, Mm -hmm. and then we get to the punch, give me something real. And then a woman told me, that she was about to get married. And after she listened to that song, she realized that she was <laughs> marrying for all the wrong reasons. Uh-huh. And it wasn't the right man, you know. Mm-hmm. And so she said she, you know, just didn't do it. <laughs> and so I said, well, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. So, you know, those kinds of things, you know, like I said, if you can change a person's destiny, I think it's very, you know, it's much more than I thought a song would do. We also talked about another career success, the Sugar Bar. In 1996, they opened the restaurant and live entertainment venue that continues to be a popular spot today. You know, favorite haunts of people, restaurants and bars and the like, really like a song, become really near and dear to them. You know, you have people who will come every night or will save special occasions to be in that place. What's that been for you? You know, I did not want to have a club. That's all Nick's dream, you know, because uh, we had a place before called 2020, and that was big, cost a lot, and just drove us crazy. <laughs> but he still was in love with the idea of the club thing. And because we had the building, 
uh, and it was open on the bottom. He said, I'm going to do it again. I was like, oh, Lord, here we go. (laughs) And sure enough, it was hard, but I I wasn't in it. He did all the decorating. And I'm glad because that we weren't joined at the hip. So you should, you know, realize your dream Mm -hmm. if this is Mm -hmm. what you want. And then I ended up spending more time in there than him because it really was fun. And it really was great to see young artists and give them that little platform. We've had artists go from that stage to the Broadway stage, mm-hmm. you know, at, or to a big gig because somebody's in the audience watching them. You just don't know, you know, what, you, what you're doing for somebody if they're great. And uh, so the place has been very rewarding. And I've seen so many of them do so well that it, it's pretty thrilling. You know, it's a way of giving back. I'm just going to throw a couple of names out. I, I had some fun with Gamble and Huff and, and uh, Jam and Lewis with this. Um, I asked them about particular artists and they talked about them recording and being in the studio and what they were like. So let me just you know throw out a couple of names for you that you worked with. What was it for, for Gladys Knight and the Pips uh, for you? Because you did Landlord and Bougie Bougie, Taste a Bitter Love with them. What was mm-hmm. it? Because Gladys is such a, I mean, such an icon. She really is. You know, the nice part about working with them was um, we had a house up in Connecticut and they came up and spent time there, mm-hmm. the whole group. And so we had fun. Mm-hmm. So it was very much like family. And then they were so supportive of her People don't realize how they helped you with her ad libs and just you need a raw, raw section. Mm -hmm. You know, my Angela used to tell me, she said, if the person in the room when you're working out trying to do something, if they're not giving you energy, then they need to leave the room. Well, those pips gave her energy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, it was fun working with all of them. And uh, those albums, I think it was more like a family affair, really, for us hanging mm-hmm. with her and uh, them. You mentioned Marvin and, and let me ask you this. Let me see if I can get some of the urban legend uh, about whether or not you did some vocals for he and, and Tammy Terrell in those records. For years, there was rumor that some of the vocals on certain Marvin Gaye, Tammy Terrell songs off their third album were actually done by Simpson because Terrell was too ill to record. Terrell would die in 1970 at the age of 24 from brain cancer. How much of that urban legend is true? Well, you know, for many years, I just totally just dismissed the idea. But the fact is that I did, we did, uh, when she was very ill, mm-hmm. I would go in with Marvin and lay down. And then we'd go line by line with her because that was the thing that kept her going mm-hmm. through her illness, through those, you know. So it was very important that she realized she still had a job to do and she wanted to do her job. I'm not saying that we didn't correct a few things through me, mm-hmm. but by and large, you know, those were her recordings that we painstakingly did with her alone. So Marvin really didn't have to live through that whole thing. We mm-hmm. did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but, you know, as a producer, I had the right to go in and change this or change that. And there was a little fix-ups here and there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about um, Diana Ross? Oh, Diana was one of the people who I think we got some of the best performances out of mm-hmm. in terms of pushing her, making her stretch. Uh, she was ever, ever ready. You know, she was always prepared and 
she was willing to do just about anything to please you. So we were really fortunate. I think we got some of her best vocals. And, you know, people always say, well, Val, that sounds like you on the bus, but it's not. Mm-hmm. When she was doing all that hooping and hollering, we just had the, uh, the tape on and mm-hmm. caught her at that moment where she was freed, freed mm-hmm. up and doing it. So I think we got some great vocals out of her. Let, let me ask you, as we wrap here, the idea of, you know, you, you mentioned how long it's been since Nick passed. And I, I recall, literally, I recall the last time I saw him, we were in Macy's. Bumped into each other in the men's department, spent about 20 minutes just talking literally in Manhattan in the Macy's. And, uh, you know, it seems like he's still to a great degree with us through the songs and he was so beloved by people. You know, I don't have to tell you that. What has the life of the music meant for you to keep, you know, the spirit alive, not for yourself. You would have that, I would suspect, but but for all of us and, and for all of us to be able to continue that love of him, you know, through you and through the music. Well, I'll tell you a very interesting story. Um, uh, there's a bench in Bryant Park that I bought because he, t- he told me the story early on about sleeping in Bryant Park. And as we walked through there, he showed me the area that he slept in. So eventually uh, the city put those benches on so that you could buy them. And I went and I bought the bench that he showed me, you know, he had slept on. So since he's been gone, you know, a lot of people know that because it says Nick Ashford slept here mm-hmm. on the bench, the plaque. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for the last even 10 years or so, we go to Brian Park on his birthday and, uh, Then we, you know, like 10 or 12 people, family, you know, my daughters and very close people. And then we go have lunch and talk about Nick Ashford, you know, and tell stories and uh, in Bryant Park restaurant. Well, this year, May 4th, it wasn't available because the whole place was rented. So I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? So I asked my daughter. So she says, we'll look around for somewhere close by. So she ended up with a restaurant, you know, on 45th Street, which was close enough. The name of the restaurant was Valerie's. <laughs> I'm like, Valerie's? You mean they were laughing? You got a restaurant? I said, not, not to my knowledge. <laughs> I tell you, Ed, we walk in the restaurant, the 10 of us, after we've spent an hour at the bench with Nick and told some stories, drank some champagne. We always do that, too. We walk into this restaurant called Valerie's, and I'll be doggone if they're not playing an Ashford and Simpson song as we walk in the door. And then somewhere in the middle, they play ain't nothing like the real thing. And then we it was spooky. Hmm. So we kept saying, well, my goodness, Nick Ashford has decided <laughs> we need another stop. He's playing DJ today, right? Yeah. <laughs> he decided we needed a new place, obviously, because here we are. I would never have been there. He'd never been there, never heard of it. As we were leaving out, they played Valerie, the song Valerie. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, I got the message. And the food was good. I would go back. <laughs> so you just don't know. And I think that, uh, I think, you know, our family and friends and loved ones who have transitioned aren't as far away from us as we think they are. We're just so busy doing what we, what it is we do that we don't pay attention. But um, a lot closer than we think. Yeah. 
Well, Val, let me say, first of all, um, congratulations on the key to the city. So well-deserved. Uh, but maybe more importantly for all of us who've loved, uh, you know, your music for so many years, uh, we say thank you uh, for that. Because at the end of the day, as you say, it will outlive all of us. And, you know, music is that thing that that carries us through, you know, wonderful times and sad times. And I yeah. think makes makes the world a little easier, particularly this crazy world we find ourselves in right now. So thank you so much. And thank you for being, uh, you know, a part of the show today. My pleasure, Ed. Again, a huge thank you to the wonderful Valerie Simpson and another congrats for next month's honor of her being awarded the key to New York City. One Hundred is produced by Ed Gordon Media and distributed by iHeartMedia. Carol Johnson Green and Cherie Weldon are our bookers. Our editor is Lance Patton. Gerald Albright composed and performed our theme. Please join me on Twitter and Instagram at Ed L. Gordon and on Facebook at Ed Gordon Media. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I'm late. I'm late. Three very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist, an authorized seller, and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.